0: Hey, everybody, welcome to this week's episode of uh, Bison Hour. I have uh, the distinct pleasure to have Chris Kreger on the mic. Uh, Chris is a proud father of three, and he owns two construction businesses, a flooring company, a plumbing company, and th- that's it here in the Oklahoma City area. Um, Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from and how you grew up and I guess your story that, that led, me, led me to this point. Yeah. Um, so my
1: name is Chris Krager. Um, grew up, born and raised here in Oklahoma city. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Moore area, I guess I went to Westmore high school as a very young kid. Um, I got to work a lot with my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, he taught me how to work with my hands, taught me a lot of different skills. Um, I would say my earliest memory of working alongside my dad was probably when I was about six or seven. mm Mm-hmm. Um my dad had a 5 gallon bucket in the garage that was full of sunflower seeds. And I was enamored by this bucket and I would just sit by that bucket and pull sunflower seeds out and I would eat them. Was it like the David sunflower seed, the big ones they get for baseball? Exactly. Was he a baseball player? No, he was not, but he was so he was a welder. Okay. Um but he was also like my dad was kind of a jack of all trades, but at that point in time in my life he was I want to say he was a Snap-on man. So he sold Snap-on tools. So he was a Snap-on dealer? Yeah. Okay. So he sold tools, and then he sold uh, he sold and built custom trailers on the side. So, like, in the evenings, he'd come home, he'd be cutting metal, welding, doing all that stuff. And so I was there, more or less, as his annoying assistant. Did you have any brothers or anything? Or? Um, so I have a little – I have a younger brother. He's about five years younger. So okay. So he was – um unfortunately he was always the one that was kind of uh left in the in the trenches cuz i was older i knew what was going on by the time he came around so my dad was always he taught me things and once i got to the point where i could help him hand him the right tools right hold things in the right position i feel like my brother kind of just got pushed to the wayside cuz he didn't know those things so sure why ask him for help you were better help yeah So I do have a younger brother, but he was never really a part of that gig. Uh, So I spent a lot of time in the garage with my dad as a young kid, Uh um, just helping him work on about anything. Sure. Um, And then at the age of, I think, 13. Yeah, I think I was 13 that summer. um, I went to work on a trailer house crew with my dad. Um, He had quit Snap-on. What is a trailer house crew? I'll get into that. Okay. So uh I've never heard that So in my life. with uh with Snap On he had some 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 deals went bad with Snap on and he had to he ended up having to walk away from that deal. And he went to work setting up mobile homes more or less. So like a trailer house.
2: Okay.
0: Um single wides, double wides. So they like deliver it does it come in modules? Like do they have to piece it together on site or Yeah, so okay. a double wide, a double wide and a triple wide will come in sections. Okay.
1: And then you have to actually marry it together, level it all out, and then you'll actually more or less seam up the whole house. So you'll do the drywall, you'll do the trim, you'll mm-hmm. do the carpet, connect all the electrical and all the plumbing. And so uh, we did that um, for, I mean, I did that for a couple summers with my dad uh, growing up. And that was that was rough work. I mean, I was 13 years old and you're crawling underneath a trailer house, yeah. dragging concrete blocks. In the hot Oklahoma humidity. In the hot Oklahoma humidity. Yeah. Um, And so I would say that 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 gave me a good eye-opening experience to work. Um, At that point in time, my parents were not not doing well. Sure. Uh, So it was more or less I came to work to be like a help to the family. Gotcha. Um, I don't think that was really explained to me, but my dad, uh, at that point in time, he knew that I was kind of getting into working out. Mm. And uh, there was this weight bench set that I was like enamored with, and I had to have this thing uh-huh. and uh it was i think it was about fifteen hundred bucks, and so my dad told me, "Hey, if you work all summer and you do a good job, I'll buy you that weight bench set so he did. I worked all summer, I got this weight bench set I thought i was I was on cloud nine I thought that was the most amazing thing I'd ever received in my life, and I mean, I was working nine ten hour days. Mm. For you know two and a half months, so that's a lot of work for twelve hundred bucks, yeah, but as a thirteen year old i didn't care yeah, it's a good deal it's a good deal um later on in life, um, I did some work for one of my dad's buddies uh-huh. who uh was the previous owner of this weight bench set, and uh he had sold the weight bench sets to my father for two hundred bucks. <laughs> <laughs> So dang. So kudos to my old man. He got a lot of work out of me for two hundred dollars, um, but that that always kind of uh, that taught me a valuable lesson. Yeah, uh, you can work for something that you want, but know the value of it before you make the deal. Um, but it also taught me a, a good lesson that you need to just work hard for anything you want, and you may get it, but in the end, it may not be exactly what you thought it would be. Yeah. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because initially you were probably stoked that you got this weight set. Oh, I loved it. And then you found out how much you got the weight set for. And there's probably like a lot of disappointment in that. Did you love the weight set as much that when you knew that or was it like? I still love the
1: weight set. I mean, at, yeah. at the end of the day, I was,
0: I was more disappointed,
1: I guess, in the fact that I didn't clarify like, hey, I want twelve hundred bucks. Sure. And then if I could have went and found the weight bench for two hundred dollars, then I would have had a thousand dollars cash. Right. Like I wasn't mad at my dad or right. upset about that situation in any way, shape, or form. I was just like, I learned a lesson that, hey, you need to actually clarify what it is you're getting. Mm-hmm. Is it a brand new, like from the store weight set or mm-hmm. used? Have you applied that in other aspects of your life since learning that lesson? Um, I would say I would say so, yeah. I mean, I I, I try to be Definitely more careful about the things that I agree to. Sure, um, and do a little bit more research before I commit um, to anything. Yeah, so that way I know exactly what I'm getting myself into.
0: So you mentioned when we were talking earlier that you worked on the farm, yeah. a lot growing up. So yeah, so the age of fourteen, um, I went to work for
1: a horse farm. Okay, um, so it's Celestial Acres Stud and Ranch. It's down off of western and like 149th. Mm-hmm. It still is there today. What did you do for them? Um so I mucked stalls. Um shoveling crap. I shoveled horse horse manure yeah. all day every day. Um I did a lot of weed eating. I fixed a lot of water leaks on all the pastures. Um and I fed a lot of horses. There you go. Um so I did I did that every summer of my teenage years from about age 14 all the way till I graduated in the summer. Um, It was kind of a unique opportunity. So my my family knows the family that owns the farm pretty Mm -hmm. well. Um, And Glenn, the the big, I guess, father of the whole place that owns it, Mm -hmm. he was a really good mentor to me. Um, He taught me a a lot of valuable lessons alongside the hard work ethic that my dad taught me. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: He gave me opportunities that I don't think many other people would have given a young kid. Mm -hmm. Um, I learned how to work on a metal lathe out there. I learned how to work on a mill. Um, He had this wild, crazy idea when I was 15 that he wanted to build a train track that went around his entire property and uh, turn it into more or less a, a fun place for kids. Sure. So that now exists. It's called the Orr Family Farm um i've been there with my kids Yep. so, so you helped build that train track yep or so you built the whole thing so the train track that you drove on um i did help build a lot of that um so the funny thing is whenever you're building a train track it's not like you can just like call a company and say hey sure come put in my small gauge train track and mess with it so glenn went out did a ton of research got a bunch of archaic equipment mm-hmm. for us to bend this train track rail And it took, when we first brought the idea to us, like we were bending train track and it took almost a day to bend a 20 foot section. Cause you're literally bending it with the C clamp and you're just slowly tightening, slowly tightening that C clamp and you just move uh, like a half an inch at a time. And if you mess it up, it'll break. And you got to redo it. You got to bend it back. Like if it's the wrong curve, has to be that precise, matched up with its counterpart on the other Damn. on the other side, because you have two radiuses, right? And so, like the inside radius of that track has got to be at one diameter, and the outside piece of that track has to be at another diameter. Does it make sense? It's got to be exact for a train not to tip on it or derail itself. Yeah, because you got to have that twenty four inch spacing; otherwise, it's just going to fall right off the rail. There you go. Um, so that was that was a challenge, and it was got to be really annoying after mm-hmm. the first two or three days. Um, So Glenn called my dad. My dad came down, and we actually made a rail bender. Um, My dad and I took an old auger that was for setting up trailer houses that you would run the the anchors in on the trailer house. Mm -hmm. We took one of those old augers, we flipped it upside down, and we turned some more or less knurled pieces of aluminum, and we turned them to where they matched the pattern of the uh, railroad track. And then we put a hydraulic ram on the third member of that mm-hmm. deal. So you more or less had like a triangle, right? You had two rollers and then one in the middle that was operated by a ram. And that one spun with that that motor. Arc. Yeah. And so we could actually bend a piece of railroad track. We could build a 20-foot section in less than three minutes. That's awesome. And if it was wrong, you could just run it back through the other direction. Um, so that sped things
0: up by a lot. Um, how did you guys know how to do that? Was that ingenuity? Uh, obviously they didn't we have just made YouTube. It. it didn't have YouTube back in the day. There was YouTube. no YouTube. So, I mean, it was literally just like
1: spitballing, coming up with ideas and then just making it. Um, so yeah, that's what we did. We just made it. That's awesome. Um, and then before, so we started bending all the rail and then a little bit before, as soon as we had some of the rail bent, you have to, you have to put down a gravel bed, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you want this gravel bed to be fairly precise, mm-hmm. um, and they had these big gravel spreaders you could buy, but none of them were the right size because you wanted it to spread a certain path mm-hmm. um, and you wanted it to just come out and be in this nice, smooth pattern. So my dad and Glenn came up with this idea for this hopper that we made out of I-beams and 3-8 steel plate, and I welded this thing together for probably three weeks. Cutting, bending, putting all this metal on there, and then then I spent a lot of time obviously just filling this thing up with gravel and then yeah. dragging it behind the tractor, and it would make this perfect trapezoid layer of gravel behind it that we would lay then lay the track and the bed on the bed
0: for the the train, the train dude by the time you were fifteen, you had an extensive knowledge of construction and fabrication, yeah, metal I fabrication really.
1: I mean, I spent a lot of time, obviously, in several shops, mm-hmm. and um, I think it was around that point in time. So Glenn had a big, several big pieces of farm equipment. Mm-hmm. I mean, multi hundred thousand dollars pieces of equipment: rotograder, big John Deere tractor, and one of the pieces that he had was a rotograder. So it would um, it would more or less grade the horse track, and we would use it from time to time to, you know, prep the. The ground for the train mm-hmm. um, one of the hydraulic rams went bad like it just broke blew blew up was leaking uh hydraulic fluid everywhere and glenn called a guy to get him out there to fix it the guy wanted like seven thousand dollars to take this hydraulic ram off and rebuild it guys leaves glenn look glenn and my dad both look at me and, he- and they said they said this and i have remembered this my whole life Um, if someone looks dumber than you, you can do anything that they can do. And their whole point was this guy, I mean, he, he looked rough and I mean, he didn't speak very good sentences. Just a good old boy. Just a good old boy. Yeah. And he knew how to work on tractors. Sure. But he wasn't that intelligent. And so they looked at me and they said, Hey, and Glenn said, Hey, if you think you can fix this, I'll give you a thousand dollars. I'll buy the parts. You get a thousand dollars cash.
0: You didn't want to weight bench this time. I didn't want to. Be, I didn't want. Yeah, I, I didn't want to <laughs> weight bench this time.
1: I wanted the thousand um, dollars. And so I got to work. So yeah. every day after school, I came home and I, I worked on that thing for a week, just figuring it out, just figuring it out. I literally like dismantled this entire hydraulic assembly. Then I found where the the O rings were bad. Yeah. I went down, got the right O rings, put it all back together. It leaked like a sieve so I had to take it all apart again. Uh-huh. Um, and when I, I realized that when I put it back together, one of those O-rings, there was a piece of metal that had slid and it actually had put another groove in all of the O-rings. And so I didn't clean it well enough sure. before I put it back together. So I had to put it back together again. And so, I mean, it took, it took a lot of hours and a lot of work, but mm-hmm. I mean, I got to put back together it was about a week, week and a half worth of evenings and
0: some Saturday time. Um, but I got to put back together and it worked. It worked great. Has your mind always worked uh, like that? Just been able to figure out calculations and I guess, I mean, if I like looked at machine, we were talking about this when we were walking in. It's like, I couldn't do what you do because I would lose patience. Like if I'm trying to fiddle with the machine and I put it back together and it doesn't work, I'd be like, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to call somebody, right? Yeah. But back in the day, you're 15 years old, you're fixing these machines, you're, you're figuring out how to fabricate all this stuff. And- No YouTube it's just you and your mind. So has your mind always worked that way or where do you feel like that came from?
1: I would say for the most part,
0: it has worked that way,
1: but I think it's worked that way in the sense that I was put in situations Mm. that helped me to gain that ability. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily, I mean, I I guess some people are really born with that knack, Mm -hmm. but I think it's just like anything else. It's like a muscle, you know, if you don't work a muscle, it's going to get weaker. Yeah. It's just not going to function as well. And I think it's the same way with, you know, learning how to problem solve. If you don't problem solve on a regular basis, you're not going to be able to do it. If you don't know how to fail. Sure. You're not going to succeed. Yeah. Um, And I think that's something that I learned at a pretty young age that failure does lead to success. um,
0: And that also you learn what not to do. Sure persistence too. Um, so, or family farm gets built, mm-hmm. that project ends. Yep. How old were you when that happened? So they actually
1: finished that one up. They probably finished it up and opened when I was about 18 and a half, 19 years old.
0: So you worked there till you're about 18, 19 years old. Yep. And then what did you do from there? Um, so I actually went on a mission for my church. Okay. Um, I served in the country of Ukraine. Okay. Um,
1: what which, are your... uh
0: no. I mean, we don't hear a lot now. I feel like a lot of media is kind of silenced what's going on, but do you still have contact with people over there and stuff like that? So over there right now, I mean, there's still a lot of
1: war happening. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, they're still bombing cities on a fairly regular basis and more or less trying to keep their –
0: Even today. So we're talking 2023.
1: Yeah, 2023, there's still fighting going on. There's still attacks on – cities happening
0: I thought, I thought they said like there was a ceasefire
1: um you know what that ceasefire lasts for a little bit but uh-huh. it doesn't last near as long as the media plays it out to be um so i mean at the end of the day um i know that there were attacks right there after the first of the year yeah that were happening on the borders um on the i guess it is the eastern border of ukraine so they're still still going down still happening um as far as the media is concerned. I think they take and they give us what we want to hear. Sure. Um,
0: and this is you talking with friends and everything, people, boots on the ground. Correct. They, yeah. Jeez. Yeah. So there are, there are several people that I know that are still there, boots on the ground, um,
1: dealing with it on a day-to-day basis. Jeez. There are a lot of families that I know that have made it out. Yeah. Um, mostly mostly the women and the children. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually just spent um, a week In October, over in Germany, Mm -hmm. visiting about six different families. Refugees
0: that came from Ukraine. Correct.
1: Jeez. Um, So that was a good experience uh, and also a a sad experience at the same time. Yeah. Very difficult time for those people just because they're totally displaced from everything that they know and love. I couldn't imagine,
0: dude. Could you imagine just being like, hey, Oklahoma city is getting bombed, it's probably good if you just uproot your family and leave. And it's like. Well,
1: it's not just uproot your family and leave. It's you as the man of the household,
0: sending packing your, family up your
1: wife and your children and, and sending saying, them to leave. see you later. You're going to be better off somewhere else without me. Now that's heartbreaking. And you can't leave. Yeah. Unless you just sneak across the border and, you know, risk getting shot. Um, so yeah, it is a very, very difficult
0: and also uh very touchy subject. Yeah, we think we go through hard things all the time. And compared to what some people have to deal with, I, I'm i always grateful for the burdens that I have to bear because compared to everybody else, it's like, they're nothing. Yeah. You know, like waking up at 5.30 in the morning is hard for me. Or, you know, we got people do, like taking ice baths nowadays because our lives aren't hard enough. And I'm sure our ancestors are rolling in their graves going, these guys have to do something hard in their lives, like on purpose because their lives are so dang easy. Yep, so and vanilla. So, so crazy, dude. I'm sorry that's going on. You know, our hearts and prayers and thoughts go out to Ukraine for sure. Right. Um, So you went on your mission there. And what was that experience like?
1: It was amazing. Um, The people of Ukraine are uh, very genuine. Yeah. Very loving, very loving people, very family oriented. Um, I have some connections that have obviously lasted over 20 years. Yeah. Uh, that I still keep in touch with on a regular basis and I, I love them like family. So yeah. that's, that's the best way to describe it. Like i I made relationships on that, uh, journey that will last a lifetime and it, it was a life changing experience. I would say that there were definitely parts of it that were very difficult, mm-hmm. um, very hard days, um, I actually did a lot of service work while I was there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, installed some uh, outdoor plumbing. Yeah, and uh, brought some plumbing into some people's houses to where they could actually uh, have a restroom inside their home. Did that on a couple occasions because um, that was, I guess, part of my background.
0: Yeah. Um, no, you're able to use the tools that you know you've been blessed with in life to help bless the lives of other people. That's yeah. what it's all about. No, it is. But we had a lot of we had a lot of good times, a lot of hard times. But I made
1: a lot of really wonderful connections.
0: That's awesome. So when you came home um, after a two year stay in in Ukraine, um, what happens next? Did you go to school? So, oh man. So I got
1: married. Okay. Five months after I got home. Heck yeah. Um, so my wife, I've known her since I was fifteen. Okay. Um, we were best friends. We never really dated before I left. Yeah. We were just really good friends. Um, And I think about halfway through um, my journey in Ukraine, I just realized that I had to ask her if she would marry me. Otherwise, uh, she may not be there when I got back. So I said, I'm going to do it. So I I asked her over the phone. She said yes. Um, Came home five months later, got married. Dang. I think two days after being home. So previous to my mission, I actually laid a lot of tile. Okay. Um, some people went to college. Sure. Chris Crager went to uh college to lay tile. Okay. And, and I, and I say that very, uh, lightheartedly because I actually laid tile at a college. I didn't go to college. Um, so there is, there's a college up here north of the city, uh, in Langston called Langston university. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Langston had, I don't know, like 980 bathrooms. And my dad at that point in time was working for a flooring company and I had just graduated high school uh-huh. and their flooring contractor was a husband and wife team and they wanted to lay the tile, but they didn't want to lay the underlayment. So the cement board underlayment that went underneath it, they didn't want to do it. Sure. So my dad calls me and said, hey, man, I got 980 bathrooms. I need you to go put cement board in. It pays it. It pays a dollar 25 a foot or whatever it was. So I
0: opened up a company. Just because you had that contract. Correct. So at 18, you opened up a flooring company. Yep. So I opened up Kregor Flooring LLC Mm -hmm. and I
1: went to Langston and started putting down cement board.
0: So then when you left to Ukraine, did you just put that on hold or did you turn it over to somebody? No, I put it on hold. But so I
1: I was laying the cement board, Mm -hmm. husband and wife team laying tile after me. They got in a huge argument like week three like knock down, drag out on the site. Like it was not a good. Wow. Yeah. Like they were like swinging at each other the whole nine yards. Wow. And, uh, they got booted from the site and, uh, they weren't allowed back. Um, and my dad calls me and says, Hey man, I need you to lay some tile out there. I was like, dude, I don't know how to lay tile. And he goes, well, just so happens one of my other crews has a son. He's 26. He's splitting off from his dad. And he knows how to lay tile, so he's going to come work with you and teach you how. So for three months, he and I laid 980 bathrooms of tile.
0: And hey, if you own a flooring company, it's probably important if yeah, the owner to knows to learn, how right. to lay t-
1: <laughs> And so uh, we laid 980 bathrooms of tile and learned how to lay tile.
0: Do you know how to lay tile like a
1: like a baller now? Just Yes. Okay. Um, so after, after that project, um, we actually scored a bunch of the big— High schools downtown here so the maps project was kind of a big thing yeah um right there around i think 2000 2001 2002 and then actually it extended on it until like 2010 as well Mm -hmm. so like douglas high school um like john marshall and there's several others but we laid all the flooring at all those high schools
0: and this is you at 18. Mm -hmm. so are you i mean stacking away cash left and right Mm -hmm. like so, so before
1: my mission, I actually saved up all the money to go on my mission. Sure. Um, I also had a a love for a nineteen seventy four FJ forty Land Cruiser.
0: It's a great vehicle that uh, I poured about fifty grand into. Are those top heavy? I've always wondered if you drive yes. those and you corner too fast, they just flip. Well, they're they're top heavy and they have a really short wheel wheelbase. Is that do they flip all the time? Or I guess they're not a production car anymore. No, they're not. They don't produce them. Correct, but they're kind of like the Ford Bronco more and more people are like I love this vehicle right Um, I've just always wondered if average day people just roll them
1: I would say average day no no you had to be doing some dumb shit to roll it (laughs) but at the end of the day I had a lot of fun with that car and I spent a ton of money on it yeah great vehicle loved it Um, but that's what I blew all my cash on nice and then I came home from a mission and literally like I had planned on going to college mm-hmm so I actually signed up um, to go to the community college down here. Um, I think it was OCCC. Mm-hmm. And I went in for my first day of class. And uh, apparently, I mean, I'd only been back in the country for three, four days. Mm-hmm. Apparently there was a syllabus. I was supposed to read it before I showed up. Oh, yeah. And I was supposed to take a test on the first day. Um, And then there was another class that there was a paper due the first day. I didn't know any of this. Uh Uh-huh. And so I think I maybe barely passed the test that I took the first day, and then I failed on the essay or whatever that was due the first day in this other class. Uh Uh-huh. And the teacher wouldn't budge at all. Like, I was like, hey, give me a little bit of – give me a couple days. I'll get this paper done. Yeah. And she would not, but she just said, "Hey, really? sorry, you're 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 getting a you're getting a zero on this assignment, and there's nothing you can do about
0: it." At the community college, uh-huh. when was that?
1: So this was in 2004.
0: Really? Uh-huh. Do you want right. to do you want to hear how bad it is nowadays? Well, I'm so, sure it's even worse. So I went to OU. Mm-hmm. I graduated in 21, right? Yeah. Um, and that was after I started, you know, my businesses and stuff like that. Uh, but my last semester. I dropped out like four or five times. And every time I just email them like, hey, can I come back? Like I tell them like, I'm done. I don't want to go to school. And then I email them. I'm like, hey, can I come back? And they're like, yeah, just keep taking courses. Like give us your money and keep taking courses. So I'm in my senior year and I have like an A in in one of my classes. And I just decide like my final paper, which is 40% of my grade, or it wasn't that much. It was probably like 20% of my grade. I'm just not going to do it. And I'll take the C, right? Because C's get degrees and I don't plan on going to grad school or anything like that. So I was like, I don't care. And I didn't take it. And I did that for a few of my classes because I was like, I'm busy. I'm I'm you know, I don't want to sit down and write these super long papers, these 20, 30 page papers, you know, my senior year. And so I did that for a few of my classes. Every single one of my teachers reaches out to me after the deadline and says, Are you sure you don't want to turn in a paper? I'll still give you full credit if you want to turn it in, like no worries, whatever. Anyway, I talked to all my friends. That's how, like, that's how it is everywhere. Teachers are so lenient nowadays. They're like, hey, just turn in the work. I don't care really when it's done. It's, it's, uh, it's actually kind of sad. Like There's no boundaries in the education system anymore. Well, it kind of makes you wonder, what's the point? Sure. Yeah. I, I went to school for, I mean, it took me, I think, six years to get my degree. And it's like tucked away in my closet somewhere. A degree from a really reputable university. It's tucked away in my closet. I don't ever look at it. And I... Regret spending thirty five thousand dollars getting a degree. Stupid. And so, I so I spent about twenty five hundred bucks to
1: go take these classes. Yeah. Um, and that like literally a couple days after I got home, my dad came to me and said, "Hey, we have a huge contract on the Moore Hospital, and I need somebody to come knock this thing out of the park and like do all these bathrooms." And I was like, "Dude, I can't do that. Like, I, I'm going to school." Sure. So I go to these first this first day. Yeah. And. I remember whenever I paid for it, at the very bottom, it said seven-day re- full refund policy. So I went down to the front office, and I got all my money back, and I told them to kick rocks. And I went home, and I went and bought a truck that day,
0: and I told my old man, I'm ready to lay tile. You took the 2500 bought a truck, and we're like, all right, let's do this. Never yep. went back to school. Never went back to school. Heck, yeah. Um,
1: and so I went and laid all the tile at the Moore Hospital. hmm and that was probably about a six month project and then after that I did the National Weather Center down in norman mm-hmm. um so it's a i think it's like a seven or eight story building with all kinds of crazy finishes and mm-hmm. I was there for almost eighteen months doing that project um all the floors in there and I had a crew of about six or seven guys and we but did a bunch of work down at o u um and so at that point that's that's kind of where my career was taking me.
0: Sure. Um, Just doing commercial buildings for public schools or just institutions.
1: Yeah. So we did a lot of commercial work at that point in time. The thing that sucked about commercial work though is like meeting the deadlines was almost impossible.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, You never started whenever they said they would let you start. Sure. And they never gave you more time. You always still had to be done on the deadline. So we were always the last guy in. Mm -hmm. And if the project didn't get done, it was always our fault. And so I had to spend a lot of hours working. So it wasn't really conducive to a family life. I mean, sure. I made great money, um, and it was a good opportunity, and I learned a lot, but it was not conducive
0: to... So you were working, I mean, how many hours a day at this point? Oh, at least 14 to 16 hours as, every day. As a 20, something year old and you're married.
1: And I'm married, yeah. Yeah.
0: What did your wife do all day? Um, so for the first summer after we got married,
1: um, so funny thing is obviously self-employed sure can't go buy anything right they don't do that all right like this is back in 2004 2005 Mm -hmm. and if you don't have two to three years of solid tax returns they're not they're not loaning you a dime no so my wife actually graduated three weeks before we got married with her master's in accounting how old Um, was she so she's
0: 20 she was 22 with a master's in accounting yeah is she super, is she a savant? Like, is she super She's pretty good smart. With numbers? Okay. Um, she strikes me so she as super was, She was going person. to be, I think she turned 23 shortly thereafter. Yeah. So, I mean,
1: she spent five years getting her master's okay. on a five-year program. And uh, she had a job offer. All she had was a letter in writing from Devon Energy. Yeah. That they were going to pay her X amount of dollars and that she started in at the end of August. And the bank wrote the loan. And the bank gave us a loan just based off of that. And I was just blown away. Like, they didn't want my income at all. They didn't care how much money I had in the bank. Yeah. Um. All they wanted was that piece of paper. So degrees aren't useless. They aren't useless. They are not useless. They do have their purpose. Um, but I think it's for a certain type of person. Sure. Um. But she spent that whole summer literally just uh, learning how to cook. Um, so she would uh, spend most of the day, like, just experimenting and coming up with stuff for us to eat at night. And i get yeah. home about seven, eight o'clock. We'd eat dinner and then go to bed. That's awesome. Get up and do it over.
0: We've had, I've had quite a few people on and a uh, revolving theme or revolving uh, just occurrence that I notice with the majority of the people that I've had on the show and just the majority of successful people I know is they got married at a young age. Yeah. What what role do you feel like your wife played in in your journey to success? I would say that finding a finding a
1: life partner finding a someone that you're married to that is going to encourage you uh-huh. believe in you and support you is probably the most valuable thing that you can have as a successful individual yeah I think without those things I think we tend to um, just looking at ourselves and mm-hmm. beat ourselves up as humans mm-hmm. and just tell ourselves how we didn't do good enough or how we could be better. Whereas when you have someone that is kind of right there with you and they can see all the things that you're accomplishing and they can remind you, hey, you did that. Yeah, That that looks amazing. You did a great job. Or I'm proud of you for accomplishing that. I think that those things are, are huge. Mm-hmm. And then also... Wanting to live up to the standard of someone else, mm-hmm. even if that standard's just built up in your own mind, I think it's another thing that is just immeasurable. Yeah, um, like I, I, I know that my wife has a high standard mm-hmm. of who she wants to be with and who what she wants me to become. Right, and so knowing that I need to live up to that,
0: yeah, just pushes me even more. It's not a bad thing, too, for your spouse to push you and put pressure on you to perform.
1: I no, mean, absolutely not
0: in essence, like, you know, p- women get married to you to be a provider. And if you're a good provider, they're happy. Yep. So, um, that's awesome. I, uh, I see your marriage and I see your relationship with your wife and I could tell it's, it's, a uh, it's been a lot of sacrifice, been a lot of work, but I could tell that you guys are genuinely happy together, which is awesome. And your kids are amazing too. So you guys have three kids? We do. Okay. What are their ages? Um, so Bodie is seven. He'll be eight here in a couple months. Grace just turned 12
1: uh-huh. at the beginning of this month. Uh-huh. And then Claire is 14. Okay.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Um, when you we'll segue back to, I guess, the story of construction. Um, so you're 20, 21 years old. Your wife's 22, 23. You guys are working as you know, young, single – or not single, but young, married. Um, you guys finally get a house. When did things really start taking off for you at work? So I worked with a family business
1: that, at that point in time. So at that point in time, um, um, a gentleman owned a fairly large company. My dad was a manager for their commercial flooring division, uh-huh. and I was a subcontractor for – that division of the company
0: when you subcontracted did you have your own llc that correct. They, okay okay
1: yeah so at that point like i operated as as a more or less an, a separate company underneath them.
0: a w-9 correct contractor and yeah. so
1: i worked underneath them for probably i don't know five or six years um and we did I mean, we did the weather center. We did the airport. Sure. So all the tile you see out there at the airport, we did all of that.
0: Is it weird when you walk into places and you're like, I did all this? It it, it is pretty weird, actually. You're like, I laid that exact tile.
1: You know, 18 years ago.
0: Yeah. So it's just
1: mind boggling to see stuff that you did that long ago still in existence and not just totally trashed. That's awesome. So that part is cool. Um, And then my dad and the owner... um, I I think they they had a a falling out over some jobs, and my dad just wanted to go out on his own. Sure. Um, So he went down on the south side of town, and he opened a little small retail flooring center. Mm -hmm. Um, And at that point in time, I was was doing contract work for all kinds of stores. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did some commercial. I did some residential. And then I would do work for my dad as well. And then – he had some guy come and write an article about about his new company sure. there in the Moore area, and this guy came up with this article, more or less painting my dad and I as this father son dynamic dynamic duo, duo local local family owned business. Yeah, and it went like it blew up literally overnight, um, from, just from one newspaper article from this one from this one magazine article we were i mean i was doing maybe one job a week for my dad at that point like yeah. it was pretty small potatoes um to i had to turn down every other company's work and i only could do the work for his company okay um and so
0: that went on for i don't know probably 5 4 or 5 years somewhere in that realm now were you just taking subcontracts from your dad's company Correct.
1: okay yeah at that point i was just taking subcontracts from my dad's company and then I wanted to grow. Sure. I wanted to more or less get off my knees. I wanted to more or less supervise. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, me and my dad more or less, we kind of joined forces mm-hmm. um, in the sense that now his company, which was called Craigers Floors and More, mm-hmm. now owned all the labor. And I just worked as like a more or less a consultant. Sure. Because I still wanted to be a 1099 subcontractor. I didn't want to be an employee for tax purposes.
0: Right. Um, all those things, but we moved forward in that direction. So were you, were you the guy going out and finding the contracts and everything like that? And then being like, dad, I need X amount of laborers or no. So at that point he was doing all the sales
1: Uh and I was just doing all overseeing and doing all the installs. Sure. So it got to the point where we were doing multiple installs a day. Mm -hmm. I had to have multiple crews. I had to be at, you know, Three to five jobs in a day, checking on and making sure everything was done correctly.
0: And how old were you at this point? 26. Dang. 27. Grinding. Yeah. Did you guys have a, did you have your first daughter at this point or not yet? Yes. Okay. So Claire, yeah, we would have had Claire right around that time. So married and a kid, mm-hmm. three to four jobs a day, 26 years old, grinding. Yeah. But
1: I mean, at the end of the day, the good thing is you're in, we were in retail homes. Sure. So... You can't really get there before 8 39 o'clock huh. and they want you out by 5 36 o'clock Yeah, i want the noise so it was it was definitely more conducive to family life sure um and we grew and i would say i don't know maybe a couple years after that it just got to the point where it was kind of monotonous i mean we were just doing floors day in and day out it was the same type of
0: floors same type of houses there's no variety the problem solving super easy because you're super good at your job. Exactly. You don't have to bend metal rails or come up with. So, so at that point, I had a couple of clients ask me about
1: remodels. Mm-hmm. Hey, would you remodel a bathroom for us?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so we did. We tried tried a couple bathroom remodels. Um, and we'd subcontract out the things that we didn't know how to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and at that point in time, like the biggest weak link in our chain was uh, a plumber. And so we would subcontract to this one plumber. Mm -hmm. He'd say he was gonna show up. He'd show up three days later. And so he would drag the project out twice as long as it needed to be. Mm -hmm. But we had all the rest of the knowledge, right? Like, obviously we can build a shower. Sure, We built them in commercial buildings for years, um, which was a huge benefit to our clients because we're building them better than any residential builder would ever dream of building a shower sure so that was a huge selling point and we sold a lot of showers that way um but the plumbing was an issue so at that point in time i teamed up with this plumber uh-huh. and i went and got my plumbing license um and so i worked with him trained underneath him
2: mm-hmm.
1: went and took my journeyman test went and took my contractor's test became a licensed plumber and then uh kind of grew the remodel business from there mm-hmm. in that interim um i built myself at least another probably two more houses
2: mm-hmm.
1: just kind of i want a bigger house i want a nicer house how nice is that just being able to build your own house it, it is nice but it's challenging i mean the the first dream house that i built um i'm not gonna even tell you how big it was because it was stupid yeah uh tell me how big it was <laughs> Um, it was almost 7,000 feet. Dang. Um, and it was, I think I built that when I was 27. So you guys are living in a 7,000 square foot house at 27. So I started at 27. I probably finished it when I turned 28. Uh Um, the banker told me I was insane, that there's no way I could build it for the money that I asked him for Mm -hmm. and more or less made me a bet that I couldn't do it. Um, I came in under budget. And he owed me dinner. So he took me out to dinner for that. But we built, we built that house.
0: um, So um, 27, 7,000 square foot house that you built and you came in under budget. We were at your house one time having dinner and you were talking to me about how this works, but how, how does getting the loan from the bank, building your own house to start to finish go and have that make sense for a 27, 29 year old to live in a 7,000 square foot house? So at that point in time, um, I had some cash. Sure. Um, I went and bought the piece of land. Mm-hmm.
1: I bought the piece of land right. Um, and the piece of land was actually more, worth more than I paid
0: for it. So did you did you just uh, pay cash? Like, here's yep. you know paid for, the land. for five acres or whatever. Paid for the land. We owned the land. Mm-hmm. And then we actually put that land up as
1: collateral to build the house. Okay. So with a construction loan, um, a bank is going to require a set of plans. Mm-hmm. A budget and an appraisal so what they do is they take that set of plans and then they actually send them out to an appraisal an appraiser that appraiser will actually value that home when it's finished okay and the bank is going to agree to give you a certain percentage of that
0: value mm-hmm. to build the home so let's say i find a piece of land five acres right i want to build a home on it yep it cost me a hundred thousand dollars we're just doing easy math um you turn around and you go to the bank and they appraise the piece of property first and they no, so they would appraise the thing as a whole. Okay, so the land is worth $100,000. You go to the bank and say, hey, I have $100,000. I want to build, you know, a $500,000 home. Yep. So you don't have the cash, but they're like, you know what, you have a piece of land that's worth 100. We'll do that. We'll finance it because I guess if you default on the loan, they own the land, they own the land and the house on top of it. So they'll make that deal. So you own the land and then you draw up the plan, send it to the appraiser, and let's say the appraiser says the house and land is worth a million. Yep. What happens there? So the bank is then going to give
1: you a percentage of that appraised value as a construction loan. So 80- Typically, typically it's 80. Okay. Sometimes it's 75% um, of that value. They're going to base that off of your bankability. So if the bank believes in you, sure. obviously you're going to pull your credit. Sure. And they're going to, make a choice like okay we're going to give this guy 80% of that value. So, so if it's valued at a million dollars, they're going to give you $800,000 to build the house. Okay. And the land. So if the land has a note on it or you owe somebody money on it, the mm-hmm. first thing that has to happen is that land has to be paid off so that's clean clean and free and clear. Sure. And then you can use the rest of that money to build the home. Now if you can't build the home for the eight hundred thousand dollars, sure, then you have to pay the difference out of pocket to get that over the finish line and finish the home. Sure, and then once it's done, then the uh, the the bank or the final mortgage company will then approve you for that million dollars and then they pay off the construction
0: loan. Gotcha. Now what happens if you build the house because you were saying that you've done this. And they come in and they appraise it once it's done. And the appraisal is a lot higher than what they originally anticipated. Does that happen? Oh, yeah. So Absolutely. let's say they come in and they're like, hey, the million dollar appraisal that we gave you initially, this house is now worth 1.5. Mm-hmm. What happens there? So at that point, you can actually go, you can go to the final mortgage
1: company and the final mortgage company could loan you up to 80% or even 90% of the value of the appraised value. And you can end up with money in your pocket. Now, whether that's a smart final financial decision or not, that's totally up to you. Sure, and it also will depend on the interest rate because then you're talking about a jumbo mortgage, right? So on and so forth because it's over four hundred and I think the four hundred nineteen thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars. So that's where you kind of have to play your cards right. So in, in my situation, when we built that house, uh, my entire goal was to keep the final mortgage under that four nineteen. So Damn. I did. Like that was my entire goal. Like I was not gonna go over that limit because it cost you extra money on the percentage, mm-hmm. um, and so that's what we did.
0: And how long did you own that house for? Um, we lived in that house
1: about seven or eight years.
0: And then when you turned around and sold it, seven to eight years later, cost you originally probably five hundred. Yeah, we spent we spent about five twenty all in. And then a couple um, of years later,
1: or and eight. we sold it for eight thirty. That's awesome.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, it was a great great deal. Um, So thanks for going over that. Like this is just for, I guess, viewers or um, listeners and stuff like that. Because I feel like a lot of times people don't understand that moving money around, working with banks is half the problem to business, I think. It is. um, When I can get money, business dealings can happen. And when I can't get money, obviously nothing can happen.
1: Well, and the other thing that a lot of people don't understand is that having – a relationship with a bank is important. Mm -hmm. But having a construction relationship with a bank is totally different than just banking at a bank. Mm -hmm. So if you've never built anything or taken out a big loan with a bank...
0: They're gambling on you.
1: They're gambling on you. Um, And so that's that's why I always recommend going with a... When you're going to pick out a builder, go with a custom builder that has a good relationship with a bank Mm -hmm. to where they can bring you to their banker... And more or less back you and say, hey, this is a good, this is a good buyer. We're going to back the project and more or less you're, the builder's going to help guarantee the deal to the bank. And that's going to be, go a long ways with the bank.
0: Yeah. They're trusting that they're going to get their money back. And they can write a construction loan easier than they can write a mortgage. Correct. Interesting how this all works. It's just that going about it in a different way. No, it is. Yeah,
1: it absolutely is.
0: Um, so you're 29 years old, you guys build the house. How long did, uh, you work for your dad? So I actually worked, worked,
1: um, with my dad until about, I guess it's almost been three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I built that house and then our remodel side of our business grew and we did, you know, we did some remodels that were over a million dollars. Um, and that was all done through Kregers. Um, and then it just got to the point where I just – I wanted to go build houses full-time.
0: Like I didn't want to just do it as a side project. Um, and you did you like doing houses over obviously commercial work and stuff like that? I did. I mean, at the end of
1: the day, I love the aspect of the design process, sure. coming up with the plans, Um sitting across the table from a client and spitballing about ideas and making their ideas come to fruition. Like that's the part that I, that I loved. And once I realized that that's what kind of drove me, Mm -hmm. then that's what I realized the direction that I wanted to go. Um, and I think at that point that's kind of where my dad and I kind of, I guess grew apart. Um, he wanted to, you know, more or less wind down make things a little more simple Mm -hmm. And I want to ramp things up and keep growing, keep growing. um, But in a, in a different direction. Right. Um, So I went full bore on the home building side and uh, it was probably one of the biggest risks.
0: I'm not going to, maybe not the biggest risk I've made thus far, but it was one of the bigger ones. Yeah. Um, You're leaving, I mean, essentially guaranteed contracts coming in and paying your bills to, I got to go figure out who to sell to.
1: Yeah, and who to build for, and yeah. all that stuff. So I mean, it was it was definitely a nerve wracking experience. But I think whenever you reach the point where you're willing to sacrifice everything, mm-hmm. that's when you realize that none of the materialistic things that you have mm-hmm. really matter. Sure. Um, and so that's that's what that's that's the point that I was at. I was like, you know what,
0: I want to do this. Yeah. And if it fails and I lose everything,
1: I don't care.
0: Sure. And it's, it, it's funny how you're craving the growth more than you're craving just the stability. B- yeah. Which, yeah. which is such a, man, that's such a, uh, a mentality. What a, what a mentality that is to succeed. It's just like, you know what? I'm going to throw everything I have at this. I'm going to, obviously there's a story about burning the boats. I don't yeah. know if you, yeah. So when, um, who was it? Uh, I Spanish conquistador it was Cortez, came across, he burnt the boats. Uh, well, Cortez sailed across the sea, they got here to the Americas, his crew basically uh got off the boat and he was like, We're gonna burn the ships because we're not going back to Spain. Yep. So figure it out. Um, is not an option. Yeah, you did that and uh so how did that go?
1: Um so I mean it went it went really well. Yeah. In all honesty, I mean that was uh just under three years ago and um Currently, we have seven houses under construction right now. Mm -hmm. Um, We have several others that are in the works as far as in the planning phase. Mm -hmm. Um, So things are going way better than I could have expected them to.
0: That's awesome. Um, uh, So, yeah, we're doing great. Why do you feel like you have found success in construction? Because I have a failed construction business. Like we did a remodel business back in 2020, right when the pandemic hit. And man, I was out of that thing in less than a year and a half. I couldn't find a way to get enough people to work. Obviously, our quality, we were just a ragtag crew of guys, no construction experience, no construction experience, no construction experience. And in Texas, you don't need a contractor's license, except yeah. if you're doing HVAC plumbing or um, electrical. Uh, electrical. Yeah. And so we were just figuring stuff out and jobs slowly got bigger, but we couldn't make enough money to cover overhead and everything. And it was like, I was losing sleep at night. So I was like, I'm out. Yeah. So what, what did you do initially or what advice do you have somebody for somebody that's just starting out in construction and how to build? So first and
1: foremost, I think having the construction experience has played in my favor, like immensely. I mean, being put in many construction experiences throughout my entire life, even at a very young age, um, just watching my dad and the. Garage weld
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, to all the way up to now building houses. Like all of those things have built up mm-hmm. to where when a problem comes along, which it's not if a problem's going to come along, it's when. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the biggest thing that people don't prepare themselves for. They just think, oh, I'm going to build a house. It's going to be easy. Sure. It, you're kidding yourself. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be a problem. But when that problem comes along, what are you going to do with that problem? And if you always are calling somebody else to handle that problem, that's where, that's where all the dollars are going. Because mm-hmm. all the problems are what cost the money. Mm. So if you can fix the problems yourself or if you know the people to call and you don't have to actually call in somebody to help you with that situation, that's where you're going to save a lot of money. In my experience. And then the other thing is relationships with your subs. Okay. Um, I have subcontractors I worked with for over 10 years. Uh-huh. Um, when they're in the trenches, I'm in the trenches. Uh, I'll give a perfect example. Last night, um, I have a plumber that works for me full time pretty much. And he is installing the water meter at one of our houses that uh-huh. we're literally supposed to close on next week. We've been waiting on the city to bring us a water meter for six months. And they just informed me three weeks ago that they don't have time to do it. I need to hire a contractor. So I get my buddy. He's a contractor. He comes over. He can't find the tie-in for the water meter. He spent probably six hours looking. Typically, a water meter tie-in is 36 inches below the ground, and it's right within the area that the city marks it. Uh, this particular water meter was seven feet underground. And so last night at 615, we found it. And I was down in the trench with him digging, covered in mud, yeah. in my boots, slinging, slinging dirt over my shoulder, and we're literally, you know, this far under the ground. Yeah, That's what makes the difference. He's in the trenches digging a hole, coming up, with trying to fix a problem. Sure. And I'm not just driving by in my truck with my collared shirt on, looking all cute, saying, hey, man, how's it going? Oh, good luck getting that hole dug. Because if I would have done that, he'd have left at 435 o'clock. Sure. And maybe come back tomorrow. Yeah. But I stayed there with him, and I just did it with him. And you built a relationship with him, too. Exactly. Um, So anytime I've – they've had a hard – project or something come up that goes wrong i try to just jump in there with them cuz number one they re- they relish in that situation that mm. wow this guy really wants to help me out.
0: And you're not a small builder. You're a busy guy. Yeah. Yeah. You got stuff going on. You got three, four businesses, a whole family and everything like that. But like, I'm not going to shy away from the work. Yeah. You're not above getting in the hole and digging mud out at seven as, even as, you know, successful as you are and everything like that, building and growing multiple businesses. Like I'm not above that. Not above it at all. I think that's such an important principle. As I've grown in my own success, I've noticed that, uh, we talk about this all the time in my organization, but leaders take out the trash. It's you're never above doing the, the most basic things. And so I make sure that I take out the trash every time we leave a room or anything like that. Cause I don't know. It, it's what it, I'm not above it. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to be successful. And yep. you're the same way. Exactly, that's, that's awesome. So, um, what has been the biggest struggle to you, uh, owning, you know, your own custom home business? Um, I would say that uh,
1: the biggest struggle – so for a lot of years, I spent my efforts just hiring anyone Mm. and training them to do what I needed them to do because I wanted them to do it a specific way.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And only recently have I just started hiring individuals that – I don't don't even care if they have the skills. The things I care about more are honesty, integrity, hard work. Mm -hmm. Like the characteristics that I know can make a great employee. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that I've looked at because hiring people is hard. Yeah. Like it's probably, that's probably one of the hardest parts of any business is Mm -hmm. just hiring the right people. Um, But When you find the individual that has those characteristics, even if they cost more than someone else, Mm -hmm. that was a hard pill for me to swallow. Um, But it's been the most rewarding decision that I ever made to just take the leap of faith and be like, okay, this is going to work because they are the right person. They may Mm -hmm. not have the exact skill set that I'm looking for right at this point in time, but they're the right person. And I think that
0: can attribute a lot of my success right now. Is either finding or helping create the right person. Yes, but they have to have the right
1: qualities in mm. the beginning. If they don't have those qualities, like there's just certain things you can't teach a person. So
0: you're saying if somebody isn't trustworthy, honest, and I guess disciplined or all the good characteristics that a man can have, mm. you don't want to hire them. Absolutely. It has nothing to do about their college degree. Nope. It has everything to do with their character. Absolutely. That is a very important lesson for everybody to hear. In today's world, hiring people is difficult. And if you want to get picked up, it's not about your experience. It's about, are you a good person? Yep. Because at the end of the day, I don't
1: micromanage my guys. Yeah. I give them a job, mm. and they come to me whenever they need help. I don't, I don't sit there and say, hey, where are we at on – this project, and mm-hmm. what can I do for you? They take care of it, and then they bring the information back like, hey, man, things are going great. We're at this stage. Mm-hmm. I have a question about this. And then I help them in that, in that regard. But otherwise, I give them free reign to go and do it. Now, sometimes does that cost money? Absolutely. But like we said earlier, you learn mm-hmm. from failure. Um, so they need to fail. Yeah, they need to screw some stuff up. Yeah, they need to cost the company some money, which hurts,
0: right? Yeah, but in doing so,
1: they're not going to do it again.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Just building my own sales team and stuff like that, I've I have inhibited the growth of my own businesses because um, I have not allowed my guys to fail as much. I'm very much the person that if you're doing something wrong, I'd rather step in and fix it for you. Because I can do it better and I can do it faster than you can. Right? And see that—that that was my mentality for so many years. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: because at the end of the day, I am—I'm I'm, going to toot my own horn. I am very good at what I do. Sure, like I can go lay circles, what in, th- in the tile industry, like I can lay tile faster than almost anyone I know.
0: Um, I used to lay fifteen hundred foot of tile a day. Dang. Um, An entire place. small house of tile. People don't realize how much that is, but that's insane. Just by yourself. Just by myself. No
1: way. One guy yeah. making mud and I was literally just laying tile all day long. Um, so, I mean, I can I can do it with the best of them. Yeah. But being able to trust others has been hard, mm. but they have to learn. Because I don't want to be that guy laying 1,500 foot of tile every day every for day the rest, for of, the rest of my life. Um, my skills are going to be better used elsewhere. Mm. Now, will I still go lay tile if, if I have to? Absolutely. Um, and,
0: and that's what makes the difference. You're never above laying tile. Nope. Yeah. That's awesome, dude. I love this mentality. This is exactly what we, we look for on the show. So, uh, custom home, we've talked about the struggles, uh, custom home business. We've talked about that, um, where where do you see yourself in the next 10 years man what's next for chris Kreger? obviously you're grinding obviously you're working this podcast isn't so much about where you are now but what you're going to do to get to where you want to be and uh just you know pressing forward in the storm and pressing forward in life because everything throws you a curveball the economy's else, down right now price of materials are up you know interest Every, rates are up interest rates are up and you got to figure out a way to weather that storm and so um, what are you going to do, and you know, what does your life look like in 10 years? Where do you see yourself? So right now we're uh, trying to diversify. We're okay. building some smaller homes, um, and they're spec homes, which
1: is a little risky, Yeah. but uh, at the end of the day. Why are spec homes risky? Um, in the sense that you don't have a buyer. Gotcha. So you're, you're hoping you're, that some family out. moves here from – Yep, you're going out, and you're getting the construction loan, you're carrying the note, mm. and you're throwing your ideas on a physical – a piece of property and hoping that you made good decisions. So somebody's going to come in and be like, dude, I love this. I want to buy it and I'll pay you what you're asking for it. Um, So we've, we've kind of, we've got five of those on the ground right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a little bit of a risk, but at the end of the day, we're hoping it brings good reward. Um, So that's, that's kind of the foreseeable near future plan. Mm -hmm. Um, We do want, we do want these spec homes to um, generate more or less a lot of data mm. for us as a company, meaning we want to be able to go and produce these on a more of a, not necessarily mass quantity, like uh, some of the, like extremely large builders. Like but some, the David Weekleys or the, oh, what are the big guys? Ideal Homes. Sure. You know, uh, there's tons of them. Dr. Yeah, Horton. Yeah. Like I don't wanna I don't think I wanna build a house on that level. Yeah. But we wanna be somewhere in between where we are now and where they are to where we're building, you know, hopefully in that hundred house a, a year range. Mm-hmm. And it's more of a a semi custom experience, yeah. not just a not just a track home.
2: Yeah.
1: Um and we wanna take that model and that data and we wanna go to, you know, investors um and maybe even investment firms or whatever. And get them to more or less back us and go into these areas and try to find land and develop areas where we are building a semi-custom experience for a client. Because I think there really is a need for that kind of middle of the road. Right. They don't really want, you know, an entry-level track home, but they also can't afford a million-dollar completely custom house. Sure.
0: Um and so in 10 years, I'd like to see us build 100 houses a year. I feel like that's how the housing market's going to turn anyway. If you want to buy a home in today's world, you kind of got to go smaller. Like it's, yeah. it's the majority of people are going to be buying smaller homes, but that's cool that you guys are going to integrate some customization into that so that people appreciate what they buy a lot more instead of...
1: Well, at the end of the day, we want them to own it, you know? Yeah. I want them to be proud of it. Yeah, I, I, I want a customer to buy a home. And I want them to invite their in-laws over and be like, man, look at my new house. Mm-hmm. And I want them to be excited about, you know, the tile that they picked out or the, the mm-hmm. faucet that they love or the shower that they helped design.
2: Because
1: mm-hmm. um, for me, having done it for myself several times, every time I go into my home, I love seeing the aspects that I put into it. Mm. Um, it just brings me personal joy. Sure. And which then just increases my happiness, my ability to, you know, relax. Yeah. And I think it just helps me out in a lot of ways that are hard to describe.
0: I've always thought that builders are super fortunate to build homes because it's, you guys do build works of art, especially if you're doing custom homes. Yeah. A lot of custom homes are, yeah, they're artwork, the way that everything's laid out, interior design, the construction work, everything like that. It must be really cool to look at a home when it's done and be like, yeah, I built that. There's got to be some satisfaction in that. Oh, there absolutely is. I mean, I'd say that's a good portion of the reason why I do it. Yeah. That's awesome. So if you could give anybody any advice, if you're a young, you know, if you could go back in time and talk to someone like you who's worked really hard growing up, who – Um, you know, has worked a lot of construction and, and stuff like that, or just people trying to figure out their life. Um, you know, if you could go back in time and give advice to yourself, give advice to, you know, late teens, early twenties, what advice would you give people today? I would say in in any industry, no matter
1: what you want to do, even if you want to go to college, that's fine. Yeah. But I would say you need to be willing and able to work harder than anybody else put in more effort than anybody else if not for any reason other than you'll be proud of who you are that will make you a better person and that will help you um, just progress because then you'll just want more if you just settle and just only do the minimum, that's who you're going to be. You're going to be a minimum person for the rest of your life. And you're going to wake up one day and you're going to wonder, who could I have been? If you put forth more effort than anybody in your industry and you work longer, you work harder, you're going to become better at it than them. Mm -hmm. You're going to become more efficient than them. And eventually it's going to pay off, whether you become the – owner of that industry or whether you become the the boss or whether you go start your own company in that industry it doesn't matter if you put forth the effort you're going to reap the the benefits if not anything you're just going to be happier so i would say pick
0: the hard path i love that dude thank you so much for coming down and being on the show i appreciate all of the words and we got some good good pearls of wisdom for you um That's it for this week's episode of the Bison Hour. Thanks, Chris. Well,
2: thanks, Bison Hour, and thanks, uh, Dakota, for having me out. No problem, man.